Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, In this section right here, could you move in a little bit? There's some big gaps and there's some people who are still looking. Um, They still don't know we set our clocks ahead, so they're running a little late. Good to be with you. Uh, Just before we jump in the teaching, I want to share something with you that's coming up next month, and that is the Blueprint Retreat. Um, This is something that I've led, oh, a few people are cheering, uh, for a lot of years, but this spring we're doing it exclusively for those who call Denver Community Church home, which means you can't invite people that don't go here. That's a joke. Um, You can if you'd like. Now, here's what this is. I have conversations so frequently with many of you who grew up in a church context, and something about it in your life isn't working anymore. There's answers you've been given. There's a religion that you've inherited. You're going, this just does not work for me, where I am, for the world in which I live, and yet you're not ready to throw it all away. And so the question is like, well, what's next? And this is what the Blueprint Retreat does. It's a time for us to come together and not necessarily find new answers, because that might be nice, but that just means you'll need another retreat in 15 years to get new answers. Um, What this is, is a time to learn to ask helpful questions, to explore, to be open, uh, and to be with one another. I know for many people who are in a place of what we might call deconstruction, it can feel lonely, Um, but when you get into a room with people and you realize, oh, there's a bunch of us asking these questions, uh, it's a wonderful time. So QR code is up there. If you have any questions, you can email me, michael at denverchurch.org. This is a smaller space and a smaller group. Um, So we'd love to see you there. With that, let's pray, and then we'll jump into our time of teaching. God, we come together uh, grateful that we are able to be alongside one another, knowing and trusting that you are right here with us in our midst. As we turn our attention uh, to this sacred text, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us, that you would challenge us, and ultimately invite us to know you and experience you at a deeper level than ever before. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles. If you've been with us, we've been walking through what does it mean to be human? What's the glory of being a human being? This is what we've been doing during our time of Lent. And today, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you're familiar with this story, there are two people in the garden, and a serpent comes to the woman and says hey, did God tell you you can't eat from every tree in the garden? And she said, well, 
God said we can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't even touch it. Because if we do, we're going to die. And the serpent says, you're not going to die. I ate some. It's pretty good. And so she takes some and she sees that it's good for food. And she takes a bite of the kiwi. And I say kiwi because we all think apple. Kiwi just keeps us honest. And then she hands some to her husband. He eats it. And then they realize that they're naked. They sew some fig leaves together. And this is where we pick it up in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children." Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food. Until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become mother of all the living. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that when we read those verses, something is off, something is not right, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And what I think is interesting about us as human beings is we kind of have this like something within us, something inbuilt where we know when things are not the way they're supposed to be. We somehow know when things are off. Uh, look at this picture as an example. Now, a couple of you are laughing. Some of you are cat people, which means there's definitely something off. Now, what's off with this picture? What's off with the picture is there's a potted plant next to a dog and a leaf on the other side of it, and the dirt is all over the carpet. Why do we know that this is off? Well, because dogs are not supposed to eat household plants. Am I right? And a pot is not supposed to be on the ground tipped over with dirt all over the carpet. A pot is supposed to be on a windowsill or a shelf or a table where the pot is there to hold the dirt and the water in so the plant can grow. And so the reason we're able to look at this picture and say something is off is because we know how things are supposed to be. And when we see this, we go, oh, while it might be a little bit endearing because it's not our house, this is not how things are supposed to be. Think about music. You can hear some music and go, ah, Yes, this is it. Then you hear a song like this. Me, 
By the way, unless you have $17,499, that's the closest you're ever going to get to hearing Taylor Swift in a crowd of people. <laughs> now, did you notice like something about that didn't feel completely lined up? Like the beat and the lyrics was just a little bit off. I played that earlier this week for my daughter, who's a huge Taylor Swift fan. We might call her a Swifty. And her face crumpled up and she looked at me and said, that sounds terrible. Why do we know something is off? Even if we're not like musicians, why is it that we can hear a beat in lyrics and the way all the things are put together and go, oh, that sounds a little bit different? Because <laughs> oh, wait, We have one person here who apparently needs to hear this sermon. The reality is, is that even if we're not like people that don't have rhythm, we know when, how beats are supposed to work together so we can hear something we know it's off. Have you ever met up with a friend and they walk in, and as soon as they walk in and they're walking toward your table, you see them and you know something's wrong. Something must have gone bad that day. They're going to tell you a story about something. And so they sit down across from you and you say, are you okay? And they're like, I'm fine, which is always a great answer when things aren't okay. And you say... Are you sure? Yeah, 100%. Well, you like, you're scowling. And I watched you walk in and you stopped three or four times and were texting on your way here and yelling at your phone as you were texting. Obviously, something's going on. Is everything okay? Why do you know something is off? Because you've spent time with this friend, you've gotten to know them, you know the way they operate, you know what their life is like, and when they show up different, you go, something is not the way things are supposed to be because I know how things are supposed to be. You see, this is what the writer is doing in Genesis chapter 3. He's saying, hey, things are not the way they're supposed to be any longer. And how do we know how things are supposed to be? Well, because of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the Hebrew cosmological poem, the creation poem, in which God speaks into the chaos and invites the chaos, or out of the chaos, light and earth and form and order and animals and sky and water and growth. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture of God's longing being realized in the universe that takes shape. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we have a whole story, and it begins with God forming human beings from the dust of the ground and breathing into them the breath of life, and humans become living beings, and humans come together alongside one another in this beautiful relationship of connection and communion and equity. And it finishes in Genesis chapter 2 saying, and they're completely naked, it's this metaphor of being alongside one another, fully known and fully open, and it says, and there's no shame. This is an ancient picture of the way things are supposed to be. The Jew, in the Jewish tradition, they refer to Genesis 1 and 2 and the picture created there, and they say, it's shalom. And we call shalom peace, but it's more than our concept of peace. Here's the way Neil Plantinga defines it. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. 
We call it peace, but it means far more than a mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Now, some of you might have a very important question in your mind right now. Well, who is it that gets to define the way things should be or the way things ought to be? Because let's be honest, we live in a world right now where there's been a pretty small group of people who've said, this is the way things ought to be, and it's been pretty crap for a lot of us. And that question is needed, and that conversation is important, and it needs to continually be reviewed. But what I would appeal to is the vision that we find of Shalom in the Hebrew prophets when we talk about the way things ought to be. It's the vision of saying that nation will not rise up against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. They will beat their swords into plowshares and beat their spears into pruning hooks. And every single person will sit beneath their own vine and beneath their own fig tree. What we might say today is nations will not rise up against nation. Russia won't bomb civilians in Ukraine anymore. We'll take the AR-15 rifles and pound them into uh, tools for cultivating the soil so that everyone can have enough. Now, how that works out and who gets to be a part of putting that together and who has a seat at the table, important questions. But what I'm inviting us to is to at least say, yes, this vision of justice and equity and no more violence and no more peace and everyone having enough and everyone's voice being heard and everyone recognizing that they matter. This is the vision of shalom. This is where the sacred text begins. And then it gets disturbed. It gets disrupted. Where there was once communion and connection, that is severed. Where there was once this peace that existed, that's disrupted. This is what the biblical writers refer to as sin. Sin is a culpable disturbance of shalom. If shalom is the way things are supposed to be, then sin is the way things are not supposed to be. Sin is the antithesis of what we see the Hebrew prophets giving a vision of. Sin is the antithesis of what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 in the vision that the biblical writer put there. It is the disturbance of shalom. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Now, I think this is important for us to recognize because in many ways, I think we've misunderstood what sin is. See, a lot of times, sin is the breaking of some arbitrary rules that somebody somewhere has said, these are the rules you have to obey. And so you have one group and they have their list of rules. Then you have another group and they have their list of rules. And so if you obey this group's rules and you're with this group, you're good to go. But if you're with this other group and you obey their rules, then you're good to go. The problem is, is you have all sorts of groups all over the place who have different rules. And so one group looks at the other and says, you're sinning. And the other group looks at the other and says, no, we're not. You're sinning. 
And oftentimes those arbitrary rules are broken up into one of two categories, personal or individual, or corporate and systemic. And let's be honest, depending on one's political persuasion, if you're more conservative, you're like, well, it's probably individual and personal. If you're more progressive, you're like, no, it's systemic and corporate. And because we're often binary creatures, we tend to fall toward one more heavily or toward the other, forgetting that it's both. Because individuals make up the systems, and the systems shape the individuals. And when we get into this idea that sin is just a bunch of arbitrary rules, then we can begin making our list. And we can honestly, when we make our list and look at people that don't adhere to our list, we can begin to feel better about ourselves. Imagine, imagine what it would be like if that happened. Like if one group of people was like, I think we've got, got our stuff together and they don't, that means we're better. Like you don't say it out loud, but you kind of talk about it a little bit. You know what I mean? Could you imagine if that was like happening, even like in the church? <laughs> Oh, that would be so crazy. Hmm. Now, some of you are here and you're like, well, if sin's not an arbitrary list of rules, then what do you do with the Ten Commandments? To which I would ask, well, if you were gathering and liberating a group of people who'd been enslaved for 400 years and you were saying to them, I want you to cultivate shalom in my world, what exactly would you say? What guidance would you give them? Maybe you'd say things like, hey, I'm a God who liberates, not a God who enslaves, so just trust me and me alone, okay? Because the other gods, the other gods they enslave people. Oh, hey, by the way, you've been working seven days a week nonstop. I want you to learn how to take a rest. So one day a week, don't do anything. Oh, don't lie. Just, I mean, for obvious reasons, don't lie. Can you not take something that's not yours? That'd be great. Don't disrupt marriages. By the way, the last commandment, thou shalt not covet. How many of us have heard that? Okay, a few of you. I'm like, come on, we're in church. You should know what the Ten Commandments are. <laughs> I want the Ten Commandments in a courthouse. What are the ten? I can only remember three. I see this is a high value for you. Thank you. <laughs> the Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet. You know what the rabbis say about that? They say, it's actually not thou shalt not covet. It's a promise that says you will not covet. Because if you adhere to the first nine commandments, the promise is you won't want anything. What a beautiful way of looking at this. This is God coming along, teaching a bunch of liberated slaves. Here how you, here's how you can live in such a way where you will, in fact, bring shalom to bear on earth to give them some sort of gauge, some sort of measurement of what happens when they disturb or disrupt shalom, when they sin. Now, some of you are sitting here, possibly, and you're still reeling in your mind. You're like, the guy said sin with a straight face and kept on going. And let's be honest, talk of sin has fallen on hard times in the church, hasn't it? And I understand why. Because people in my role, a preacher have been known to stand up on a Sunday morning in a gathering much like this and scream and yell at everyone sitting in front of them about what horrific, terrible sinners they are. Or they just throw rocks at the people that aren't in the room and tell everyone who's in the room how terrible the people out there are. And they often do this in such a way where it leads you to believe they really think they have nothing to confess and that they 
are free of sin, which makes it even worse. And how many of us have heard stories about pastors who are known to do that, who at some point down the road eventually get caught in the very sin they're so passionate in preaching about? And you think to yourself, you lousy hypocrite. And so you show up on a Sunday morning and some guy stands up and is like, hey, we're going to talk about sin. You're like, really? <laughs> we're going to talk about this? How many of you have ever had like really religious people who say, hey, you know what? I really want to point something out in your life because it's the loving thing to do. And then they condemn you. And then you say, it's interesting, the people who are the most insistent on pointing out the sin of others are always the most resistant in having their sin pointed out. Isn't that interesting? They only want to give love, apparently they don't want to receive it. <laughs> and the, you say, well, listen, it, the problem isn't you pointing out the way I've disturbed shalom, the problem is the way in which you're pointing out how I've disturbed shalom. Because there's like kind of an edge to it, a little condemnation it's worth pointing out that throughout the Gospels, Jesus is continually talking to religious people who love to point out the sin of others and kind of strap condemnation to that. He's never a fan. As a matter of fact, Jesus would go on record as saying, hey, if you are consumed with who's in and out, with who God does and doesn't love, with who's going to hell and who's not, with who's the real sinner, just know you're standing in the wrong place. And what I would contend is that while these are two of many good reasons not to talk about sin, if we're going to talk about the glory of being human, we actually have to include this piece of it because I think we can at least admit things are not the way they're supposed to be. Like things are not the way they're supposed to be in our world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be in our country. Things are not the way they're supposed to be in the city in which we all live together. Things are not the way they're supposed to be in our neighborhoods and in our schools. And yes, in our very lives, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And if we're in a place where we're like, well, I get that, but really I don't think it's worth talking about, then let's just recognize that we're participating in a pattern that humanity has been in since the dawn of time. Back to Genesis chapter 3, God comes to the garden, the people hide, and God calls out to the man, where are you? And he says, I was naked, so I hid. And then God says, did you eat the, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And listen to what the man says. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Rough, a more literal translation is, the woman you, God, gave me, gave me fruit and I ate it. So he's like blaming God and blaming the woman. And then God turns to the woman and says, what have you done? And she says, well, it was the serpent. This is called denial. We're so good at it, aren't we? Like, have you ever had to sit with your three-year-old and be like, hey, listen, okay. At some point, I'm going to blame you for something. I'm not going to be sure you actually did it. When that happens, what I need you to do is just look at me with those beautiful eyes in that cherub face and say, Mommy or Daddy, I didn't do that. I think it was Sarah. And point at your 18-month-old sibling who is not yet able to talk and therefore will go over there and probably laugh it off. Why don't we have to teach humans how to deny, how to blame shift, how to deflect? Interesting, isn't it? 
What I find most interesting is, is that while we are quick to deny our own ways in which we have disturbed shalom, we don't really like people that do that. Like, how many of you love hanging out with someone who always has to be right? You're like, oh, I cannot wait to be with Jim tonight and find out all the ways I'm wrong. What about people who uh, can never be wrong? Yeah, I'm both, by the way. <laughs> like, when I'm at my worst, I am right and you are wrong, and I will sit you down and just bullet point 15 reasons why, and if you're lucky, I'll tack on a 16th as a bonus. And the reality is all of us have a little bit of that in us, don't we? Jesus, like, the people that Jesus just seemed to just have no patience for were people like this. People who lived in flat denial. People who really believed their own press. People who believed that they were, in fact, righteous. And, you know, if you read Jesus' words to them, they're pretty strong. Woe to you, you blind guides. Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. You look clean on the outside, but inside you are full of bones and decay and death. I used to read those words and think, man, Jesus was just opening a can. He was so mad. And I'd read it like, woe to you. Just this, you know, bodybuilder Jesus. Not that bodybuilders are angry, by the way, but I mean, you know. But more and more as I read it, you know what I hear in Jesus' words? I hear a longing. I hear an ache. Woe to you. I mean, you look so good from the outside, and you know what? I think that's all you're looking at, but look inside because it's, it's riddled with death. I think what I hear in Jesus is a longing for them to wake up and to see them the way he sees them. Because the reality is this, every time we participate in denial, we deny grace and forgiveness a chance to do its work in us and on us. I think that Jesus had a longing for those religious people that we've been taught never to be able to tolerate and that we now participate in condemning those who condemn. I think Jesus had a longing for them because he knew that every time they refused to turn around and start the long walk home, they missed out on the same kind of love that the prodigal son and that beautiful story Jesus tells experienced when he walked home. If you're not familiar with that story, it's a story about his son who says, Father, I'm taken off from home. Give me everything you owe me. And he goes and squanders his inheritance on wild living. He ends up at the bottom of society and says, I need to go home and tell my dad I'm sorry so he'll make me like one of his hired men. And Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him and wept and put a robe on his back and a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and said, my child, it was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. You see, every time we were like, well, I think we need to talk about somebody else's disturbance of shalom. Well, I think we need to talk about the big issues that are disturbing shalom. Anytime we excuse ourselves from this conversation, then what we're saying is that we don't need to experience what it's like to have a love run down the road while we're still a long way off and welcome us home. But every time we say, no, I need that, 
then it's in those moments when we're stumbling over that last hill before we get home, even before we reach the farm gate, that we see love and grace and forgiveness running toward us, weeping and laughing and waving its arms at us. A love that embraces us and doesn't shudder at the state that we find ourselves in. A grace that embraces us and doesn't hesitate to ask what it can bear. It only cries out, this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my child who was dead and is alive again, who was lost and is found. Perhaps the most important reason we can begin to be honest about the ways in which we disturb shalom, the things within us that are not the way they should be, is so that we can have a real experience of grace in love and forgiveness. And not be those who participate in denial. Kathleen O'Connor says this about denial. She says, with theological abandon, I've come to think of denial as the original sin, a primal human rejection of the truth. You see, it's only when we embrace the truth about ourselves that we experience the grace and forgiveness that only God can give. And I believe with all of me that God gives that. And I believe that because in the moments when I have insisted I'm right, when I've sworn that other people are wrong, when I've been angry, when I've treated others in a poor way, in the moments when I stop fighting, when I stop being defensive, when I approach the other, when I seek forgiveness, when I offer an apology, what I've often experienced in the face and in the words of my siblings is a love that runs down the road and welcomes me home. And it's a glimpse, it's a picture of the way things are supposed to be because it's a first step toward reconciliation, toward a restoration, toward a renewal. And that's, I guess, the bad news about the good news. You see, the good news is this. You're already forgiven. This is why anytime someone comes up to Jesus, he says, your sins are forgiven. The way he's saying it is like, hey, I'm going to tell you something you're not aware of. Your sins are forgiven. Now, here's the bad news about the good news. Forgiveness will never have its way with you unless you're honest about who you are unless you're honest about the things you've done and left undone, until you're honest about the things you've said and that you've left unsaid. The bad news about the good news is until you are honest about what's not right within, you'll never experience the grace and forgiveness that God so longs to give you. And maybe that bad news is in its own way a form of good news. Robert Capon says it this way, he says, you're not dealing with a God who needs to be shaken awake by heroic measures before he'll pay attention to your interests. You're dealing with somebody who's totally on your side already and with whom you don't have to negotiate a thing. He's gone and negotiated the whole deal all by himself in Jesus. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the whole test-passing, brownie-point-earning rigmarole of the human race has been canceled for lack of interest on God's part. Not only can he handle it, he's already handled it. He has all our messes fixed in Jesus right now, even before we make them. All we have to do is trust his assurance that losers are his cup of tea. 
It's, in fact, it's precisely our attempt to be winners that he warns us about. He who saves his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You see, I don't think it's any news to you for me to stand up this morning and say things are not the way they're supposed to be. But perhaps we can hear the good news that things can be by God's good and determined grace the way things can be the way they should be. So here's a question I want to leave us with this morning for your consideration. And it's simply this. What is it within you, not your friend, not your partner, not your spouse, you, what is it within you that's not the way it's supposed to be? What are the things within you that you would look at and say, yeah, this is not the way it's supposed to be? And I just want to invite you to some honest consideration around that, not so we can preach at you more, not so you can be shamed, not so you can be condemned. I invite you to be honest about that so that you might experience the grace and forgiveness that works in and through our entire world and is just waiting for you to say yes. I'm inviting you to be honest about that so you can simply be those who understand what it's like to have a love run down the road while you are still a long way off and embrace you and say, my child, you're alive again. Because maybe when we experience that, we will grow a little bit more in the understanding of what it is to have glory in being human, that we might catch a glimpse or a picture of the way things ought to be. Let's pray together. God, for all the pictures we have of you, of this God who's just waiting to get us and punish us, condemn us, would you replace that with the picture that Jesus gives of you? One who runs down a road while your children are still a long way off and embraces them in all of the state that we're in, you embrace us, you welcome us home, you cry, you weep, and you shout, my child is alive again. Would you allow us to be honest about the ways that we have participated in the disruption and disturbance of shalom, the places and spaces within us where things are not as they are supposed to be, so that we would be those who receive grace, and in receiving it, can be those who give it. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends said. Amen.